traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. The Economist. From The Economist in London, this is Money Talks, a weekly conversation about news in the worlds of business, finance and economics. I'm Edward McBride, the finance editor. On this week's show, Donald Trump's presidential campaign may be astounding and confounding political analysts, but it's also flummoxing economists. And we'll also look at high-denomination banknotes. Are they only useful to criminals? And if so, why do they still exist? Here with me to talk about all of this are Philip Coggan, our Buttonwood columnist, and Sumaya Keynes, our economics correspondent. Let's start with you, Philip. So the Donald famously wants to create a national register of Muslims. He wants to build a wall on the Mexican border to be paid for by the Mexican government. Are his economic policies similarly outlandish? Well, uh, they are not quite so divorced from the Republican mainstream, perhaps. He is in favour of huge tax cuts, which many other Republican candidates are. The question is whether they really add up. He's in favour of increasing hugely the standard deduction for individual taxpayers and cutting the rates to 10, 20 and 25 percent. He's also in favour of cutting all business taxes to a flat rate of 15 percent. Now, some loopholes will be closed as a result of this, though, intriguingly, he's made much of his belief in ending the carried interest loophole. But the effect of his tax plan will be to reduce the tax rate paid by private equity managers who have benefited from the carried interest loophole from 238 to 15%. So he's nailed the private equity vote for the rest of the year. That's one thing he can count on. The uh, Tax Policy Centre, which has gone into all this and has allowed for some economic boost to lower taxes, has estimated that over 10 years, all this will add up to a cost of $950 billion a year or $9.5 trillion over a decade. So you might say that um, Mr. Trump is a uh, classic Keynesian who uh, is planning to um, stimulate the economy via tax cuts. And indeed, you could argue that the wall is the equivalent of asking people to dig holes and bury money and uh, dig it all back up again, except that he also plans to balance the budget. So how do you balance the budget in those circumstances? Well, to uh, cut spending. Uh, The three biggest uh, elements of spending are Social Security, that he aims to protect that, Medicare, which he also aims to protect, and then finally Defence, which he plans to build up, not cut back. So the Tax Policy Centre has done an analysis. Just to pay for his proposals, uh, you would have to cut the rest of the federal budget outside Social Security, Medicare and Defence by 61 to 78%. And if you wanted to actually balance the budget, you couldn't because there's not enough spending left once you've protected Social Security, Medicare and Defence uh, to cover the $9.5 trillion cost every decade of his proposals. That, that sounded like a long way of saying that his proposals don't even vaguely add up. But of course, uh, you know, it's a long way from getting any of these proposals anywhere near enacted, right? I mean, he would not only have to win the Republican nomination, he'd have to win the general election. 
Then, of course, he'd have to get Congress to play along. Nothing in this shape, even if he were proposing sensible things, is, is likely to happen, is it? So, so why should we worry about it all? Well, I think the sheer uncertainty of the nature of his proposals means that the markets will worry as we get nearer to November. Let's assume that it is a Trump versus Clinton election and that Hillary Clinton is tripped up either by something to do with the Benghazi scandal or some other um, financial revelation from the Clintons' past checkered history. Then Donald Trump's chances might improve. Let's assume that there's a terrorist attack in America and he is perceived to be the strong candidate on anti-terrorism. So then he has a better chance than one might think of becoming president. So we don't know, as you say, how much of that he will put into practice, partly because he seems to be making it up as he goes along. But also we don't know what the Republican Congress would push through to support that. So that is uncertainty. And the one thing we do know is that markets don't like uncertainty. Even leaving aside Donald Trump's proposal, so there's a, a generally populist tone to the, the presidential election across the board. Um, on the Democratic side, Hillary Clinton and, and Bernie Sanders seem to be trying to outdo one another with ever more stringent proposals in terms of financial regulation. Again, presumably, even if one of the, the more sensible candidates wins out, let's say Hillary not only wins the nomination, but then is the front runner in the general election, that's still something that presumably will, will worry markets. Yes, I think so. If there's a general tone of isolationism amid America, if trade deals are out of the question because Hillary doesn't support them and because she may well face a Republican Congress, just as Obama has done, and so it's very difficult to get anything through as the president, then four more years of gridlock might not be what the markets are looking for. And you have to add into the fact that the rest of the world is heading more isolationist too, that populist candidates are doing very, very well in Europe as well as in uh, America. Uh, Britain is having a referendum on leaving the EU. Uh, the pound has been falling quite regularly in response to the higher chances of Brexit. So we have a very uncertain uh, year in terms of the political impact on markets. Well, that's a very gloomy prospect, a, a year of endless uh, nerves and uncertainty. Let's turn to you, Samaya. You've recently been in Switzerland where the uh, biggest note in circulation, the 1,000 Swiss franc note, uh, is worth roughly $1,000. Why do they need such a big note? Why do any countries have, have notes that you'd really struggle to get a taxi driver to give you change for? Yeah, it's fun. So if you go to a wild bean cafe uh, along a Swiss highway, then there'll be a sign outside the door with about you know nine different card types that you can use to pay for your petrol. Um, and then a picture of the purple 1,000 Swiss franc note with a massive red cross through it, right? So so most kind of normal payments that you'd make day to day, you just can't make for these thousand franc notes. However, these notes, they account for about 60% of all Swiss cash in circulation, right? So, so someone's using them. And, and people who like them claim that they're a kind of store of value of last resort. So um, in 2008, you saw a big spike um, in demand for these thousand franc notes. I think that it went up by something like 16% in 2008 compared to kind of 1% to 3% in earlier years. So when people are scared, they think there's risk in the, in the financial system, then, then they turn to these safe assets. That might be true, right? But the people who are really using them are drug smugglers, gangsters. Right, so know. that's the, that's the suspicion. So that in, in the UK, actually, banks and currency exchanges are banned from selling you these things. You know, if you go to a currency exchange in Heathrow, you'll say, please, can I have one of these things? I'll say, no, we're not allowed to give you one of these. And that's because there was this report in 2010 from the Serious Organised Crime Agency that found that actually around 90% of the 500 euro notes in Britain were in criminal hands. And so over the past few weeks, there's been this recent surge in interest in getting rid of the 500 euro note because people are 
worried that actually it is helping drug smugglers, human traffickers, money launderers. Law enforcement agencies are very clear that this is a preferred instrument of criminals. You know, these very high denominations, they're very compact. Some some even say that they trade it above their face value because they're so useful in transferring large amounts of cash across borders. But the headline is that we don't really know. And that, that's kind of unsurprising given that the point of cash is that it's anonymous and difficult to trace. So law enforcement agencies say, yes, they use it, um, but we don't have good statistics on what fraction of these things are used. A lot of governments seem to be convinced by the idea that high denomination notes, if not used for organised crime, then at the very least are, are used for tax dodging and, and sort of more, more petty crime in that sense. And lots of governments have been phasing out high denomination notes, right? Yeah, so we have the the 10,000 Singapore dollar, that's worth about 7,000 US dollars. That was phased out since about October 2014. The Canadians phased out their $1,000 bill in 2000. So you have seen kind of governments around the world taking a stand against these large notes because of these fears that it's associated with crime. So interestingly, actually, the, the reason this has come to the top of the political agenda now is because of worries about terrorist financing. But actually, the evidence there is that terrorism, that the point of those criminal activities is not to generate cash. Um, And so actually, the amounts of cash involved in in terrorism are are fairly small. The big concern is money laundering and trafficking across borders. And so where do you come out on all of this? Do you support the idea of phasing out the big notes? Or do you think the value in terms of privacy outweighs whatever difficulties this keeping the big notes presents for law enforcement? I think overall I'm in favour of getting rid of these very, very high denomination notes. Clearly there's some benefit in having a large store of value in cash, but the convenience that you're giving to criminals seems to kind of outweigh those benefits. One of the the debates that's happening around this is whether this is the thin end of the wedge. This is just one step away from getting rid of all cash. Um, And so in Germany, there's been huge resistance to getting rid of these high value notes because of kind of worries of of surveillance and that the ability to pay in cash is, you know, a kind of a right. But I think that there's a big difference between phasing out the very highest value notes, which has been done in Canada and Singapore poor and getting rid of all cash. So help to conserve cash for regular Joes by making it more difficult for criminals to use. Exactly. Thank you very much, Sumeya. Uh, Thank you also to Philip. Uh, That's all we have time for today. Don't forget, if you want to be a part of the conversation, you can tweet us at econbizfin or econeconomics. And you can find both Philip's column on Donald Trump's candidacy and Sumeya's article about high denomination notes in the forthcoming issue of The Economist or on our website at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. (laughs) The Economist. 